In God's word, I'd love for you to take it and turn to Mark chapter number 11 this morning. Mark chapter number 11. We will pick up from where we left off last Lord's Day and pray that the Lord bless us as we come to His and our truth. His truth, but I pray our, our truth this morning. So if you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word out of uh, reverence for it, and we'll take up our reading this morning in verse number 11, and we're going to read through verse 24. Uh, in verse number 11, we read these words penned by Mark. Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now the next day when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem, and then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, um, we praise you this morning um, simply because you're worthy to be praised. Father, we thank you for the opportunity um, just to bless your holy name. So with David, Father, would you help us uh, with that great prayer, bless the Lord, O my soul, bless his holy name. Would you help us this morning, Father, um, to bless your holy name. God, to glorify you in a way that we have not yet. Father, to give you honor and due um, the honor and the glory that is due your name. Father, through the preaching of the word and through the receipt of it. Father, this is your work and not ours, so would you do your work now as we go to your word. But at the same time, Father, we realize that there's a responsibility laid upon us. So, Father, would you help us to hunger and thirst after righteousness such that we would pursue it um, in a mighty way. God, would Christ and his exaltation and, um, and everything that he is, would he be our great love and our great pursuit this morning, Father, in the text. So, Father, whatever, um, whatever you desire of us, we pray this morning that we would give it to your, to your holy name. Father, but at the same time, recognize that it's all yours anyway. We're not to be creative or inventive. Help me, Father, not to be creative or inventive, um, but simply faithful to the text. Lord, and um, your bride sits before me, um, the one for whom your son died. God, and she needs something this morning. 
I don't know what exactly that all that is, but she needs you. Uh, there's so many needs represented here, probably discouraged hearts, Father, probably people struggling in a hundred different areas. Lord, and I, there's no way I can hit all those this morning, um, but I know that you can. You can take the same sermon or the same text and just suffice all the needs of our hearts. So, Lord, would you uplift the downcasted? Father, would you um, strengthen the weak? Um, Lord, would you convict the sinner? Father, and would you encourage the faithful this morning um, through your word, even in a text that it may not seem like all those things could be accomplished. Lord, we trust you to do the impossible this morning. And Father, give us the faith to believe whatever, whatever you desire for us and help us to pursue it, Father, with all that we are and all that we have. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bless you for standing. This is somewhat of a, a large portion of text. And don't worry, I'm not going to preach it all. We'll probably break it into a couple, if not more sermons than that. And uh, particularly, the, the, late, the latter portion, um, definitely we will break up into another sermon next week speaking about prayer. Um, there was some contemplation on my part whether or not to even break up this portion um, from verse number 10 to verse number 21. Because here's two accounts. Um, and it's interesting to note that whenever you come to the book of Mark, um, and I love the book of Mark, I love all the Gospels. Uh, Mark has, has become precious to me probably just because of the way that we're going through it. Um, but, but one thing that I love particularly about the Gospels as well um, is just the uniqueness of each writer. Um, it, it amazes me the providence of God and His uh, preservation of the Scriptures through it. It's not as if God dictated um, the Word of God to the people such that it would be monolithic in one language um, um, throughout the entirety of the Bible such that you could look at it and say, you know, as academics would, and look at uh, different texts and say it has the same dialect, the same uh, usage of verbs and, and various things. Uh, by the way that it speaks, we know that it's uh, of God. Uh, from an academic perspective, you can't tell that. Um, uh, that, that there's a monolithic type of um, reality running through. Uh, we look for that great scarlet cord of redemption and just God's stamp of approval. Um, but God didn't just give the Word um, in, a, in a dictated way such that um, they wrote um, kind of apart from themselves everything that we have in Scriptures. God used them retaining their personalities and their own autonomy to write um, the inerrant, infallible Word of God such that we can take John's letters and we can look and we can see, man, this is John. This is the way that he talks in the first epistle. That's the way that he talked in the Gospel. You know, he uses the same language in, in uh, the Gospel or in the, the book of the Revelation. And you can see the personality of John and his vernacular and his particular talents. You can see the medical knowledge of um, the, the Dr. Luke whenever he writes his Gospel. You can see the Jewish nature of certain men and the Gentile nature um, of, of, of uh, or, or uh, the leanings of other men. You can it comes out in the Apostle Paul and his upbringing and and his learning and things like that. And it's the same with Mark. Uh, something that is unique with Mark is um, the way that he sandwiches certain things in. Is the way that he uh, sandwiches certain texts in. For example, he will begin something and then he will run off on a tangent on something else and then he will bring it back and finish the story. 
Um, and in some way, that's exactly what you see in this portion of Scripture. He begins a, a story concerning the fig tree, and then he runs to the temple, and then he comes back and finishes the story of the fig tree. And in teaching and preaching, sometimes you almost need to skip over that middle part to get the, the meat of both of the, the entirety of the first story and then come back um, later. Mark, um, he, he often does this, where Matthew doesn't. Matthew records these accounts in two totally different um, types of uh, scenarios scenarios and then finishes them off um, so there was uh, in my own mind thinking should I take this portion of scripture and preach and teach it separately or together and I'm, I'm convinced this morning that we're going to do it together because I believe that their sandwich uh, the sandwich is there for a reason and that what you find here is that both of them um, in some sense is a proclamation um, of the judgment that is to come against the nation of Israel and then we'll make some application um, to us because it is definitely still applicable um, these portions of Scripture. So we'll just jump right in. Last week I read up to verse number 11, um, but I really didn't talk about verse number 11 at all. It seems kind of obscure. Um, it's one of, those, uh, one of those little tidbits of information that you wonder exactly why it's there at all. But in verse number 11 you read these words, and Jesus, and again this is after the triumphal entry, um, and Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when He had looked around at all things... As the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And then in verse 12 it says, Now the next day, when he had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing uh, from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to it to see perhaps if he would find something on it. What you find is after the triumphal entry and that great coronation day, um, whether formal or informal, um, it was definitely the fulfillment of prophecy, whether they received it or not. Um, in that crowd, no doubt there were people who, who did receive it and received Him well, and there were people that didn't um, in large portion. No, none of them, I'm convinced, really understood the fullness of all of it, even the disciples, and they wouldn't until Christ was resurrected from the dead and glorified and exalted to the right hand of God the Father. And they would see Him in His, uh, in his glorified state, and He would come back and minister to them as the resurrected Christ. That's when it would begin to make all sense that the king could come and that um, prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, had been fulfilled and this truly is um, the Son of God. Um, following that, um, we see somewhat of this obscure text. Jesus then um, went to Jerusalem into the temple. Um, so that when he, he just looked around and the hour was already late. And um, there's some speculation. We can speculate exactly why he was there. Um, whether this is uh, meaningful in a, uh, or at all. You know, nothing really happened. Uh, maybe they expected something to happen. Maybe Jesus went expecting something to happen. Commentators um, speculate. We're not 100% sure. But I'm convinced that um, it was at this moment that the following day's activity became decisive in the mind of Christ. Um, that he goes and he sees the money changers and he sees what's happening within the temple um, and he decides exactly what he's going to do the following day um, within his journey. And um, then he returns to Bethany. Um, you may remember Bethany. Bethany is that place of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus has just recently um, raised from the dead. Uh, the text tells us that he goes back to Bethany, possibly um, to, to, to stay the night with them, uh, to take up his activity um, on this next day. And it says in verse 12, Now on the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, so they're leaving Bethany, that's where they stayed the night, um, the text says that Christ was hungry. 
It's interesting to read men who have written on this and multiple men, and they just bounce around and write pages because they have to write a book, you know, and sell it um, on the reason that Jesus was hungry and whether he should have been hungry at all or not. You know, I mean, surely Mary and Martha would have fed him. So, so they, 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 wrap, they can't wrap their minds around the fact that he just ate and that he's hungry um, again. Nevertheless, we know that the text says um, that Jesus is hungry. I'm a great reminder of his humanity. Um, reading this text. I mean, you don't think that things like that should really impact you or influence you quite as much. But, it, but, but in all reality, the fig tree story um, is a direct result of the humanity of Christ. Um, if there's anything to glean from this, it's a result of the fact that He became a man just like us, um, willing to, 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 to take part with us in every single point um, like us. And it was the very fact. Um, I'm convinced that we have the, the, the result of this story and the implications of this story and any application that flows from that. Had he not been hungry um, that day, I don't believe that we would have had, at least in, in this sense, um, the, the parable um, or the, the account of the fig tree. There was something in him that provoked him to go to the tree. And when he gets to the tree, we have the result of, um, of um, the teaching. And that's exactly what we need to remember as we read through the Gospels. Um, that our Lord was a man um, like us. Sure, He was God. Um, and we're never going to be able to, to um, uh, reconcile those realities in our mind to the fullest extent. Um, but I think oftentimes we need to be reminded that as we go throughout the Gospels, um, that Jesus Christ was a man like us in all points. And that He lived the life of um, a man just like we should. We should remember that in Luke's gospel, he reminds us that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. You know, because that's going to be another thing that's just going to um, just going to kind of um, boggle our minds as it does the commentators and us as uh, people who are made of just flesh and blood and real stuff and and think about things. You know, is is why is he so astonished when he gets to the tree that there's no fruit on the tree? I mean, he's God, right? He should have known that there wouldn't have been any fruit on the tree. Um, I mean, he should have been able to look afar. He should have been able to look with his omniscience on in time and, rea- and, and understand with reality that that's not the place to go. You know, it's like going to Lowe's and trying to pick something up. Had I known that it wasn't there, I wouldn't have wasted my time in going all the way to Lowe's. You know, thank God for, for, for Google and, uh, and the Internet and phones so that you can call ahead. But I rarely do. Um, but, but, but why didn't Jesus, you know? I mean, he's, he, he has more information than, than the Internet, more information than Google. Um, why does he go all the way out of his way to find this tree whenever uh, in all reality he has all divine knowledge? Um, because Philippians chapter 2 says us that he veiled much of his prerogatives, his authority and his rights. And in some sense, there's even um, the reality that, that he veiled some of his knowledge. I'm convinced that he went to the tree not knowing that there was fruit on the tree. Um, just like in other places in the gospel, um, he tells his disciples that there are certain things that he doesn't know, like the day and the hour. It's only in the Father's hands. It was like when we looked in uh, back in Mark just a little while ago, and one of the accounts, um, James and John are coming and battling it out, and he said, that's not for me to give. It's not for me to tell you. Um, there are certain things, and you say, explain that to me. He's God. I'd, uh, good luck, you know. <laughs> if you got all evening or the rest of our lives, we might be able to, to scrape uh, off some of the, the moss off of that stone um, because commentators and men much smarter than we are have been able to tr- been trying to do that for, for millennia now and haven't even been able to. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with God being God and me being me and, um, and just uh, trusting the text of Scripture and, uh, and, and just being enamored 
remembered as we walk away at the um, truly God nature and the truly man nature of our Lord and Savior, um, Jesus Christ. As Luke said, he grew in wisdom and he grew in stature. As Hebrews tells us, he learned obedience. He grew and he learned and he asked questions and he marveled at times. There were times that he was astonished and that he was moved with compassion in his inner man. And here you see that he's going to be um, uh, ruled and he's going to rule himself with indignation over what happens. That the Son of God comes and He lays aside certain prerogatives of, and lives the life as a man would live it, submitted to and filled by the very Spirit of God. I'm convinced that most of His life, um, or at least much of His life and much of His ministry in the last three years, He doesn't live um, just tapping into His divine nature. I'm convinced that He lives as a man lives and should live. I'm convinced that the only way that this text makes any sense with the application in the last portion is is if what he does to the fig tree is as a man would do it by accessing uh, the, the power of God through faith such that God would bless the, 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 the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. Otherwise, it, it's not a possibility because at the end he says, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast it in the sea and no doubt does it in his heart but believes that those things he says will be done, he, he will do whatever he says. Um, Jesus, because they look at him and they say, why did you do this? And Jesus says, have faith in God in verse 22. And if you have faith in God, you'll be able to do this. That, that, um, that Jesus as a man, um, I think spent much of his life um, just living life as a man should, filled with the Spirit of God, totally submitted. Thus, he can say in application, you saw that, now you can have this. Otherwise, if he was just tapping into divine knowledge that's not communicable to me and to you, um, this would not be a reality and you can walk away. No mountain will ever be moved because only God can do that. Um, but God did this. Uh, but Jesus Christ does these things through the power of the Spirit of God. And that's what you see in Matthew chapter 4. That's what you see in Acts 2.22. Peter preaches, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you, by miracles God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, that He did it as a man, that He did it as God worked through Him, as He fully submitted Himself, as every man should do, and even was ruled um, without measure, sometimes it says in the Scriptures, um, by the Spirit of God. Yet He hungered. So He, he hungered here. Um, that, that He yielded Himself to the, uh, to the constitution of a man such that he walks away and whether he had breakfast or not, we don't care. Um, he's hungry again, you know, and uh, towards the, the later portion of, of the day and it provokes him to a tree. Um, and it's interesting that as, you, uh, as you, you study these passages and you read other men, it's like every single passage is the hardest passage in the, in, in the book of Mark. Um, and this is a difficult passage. This is a difficult passage from just, just a reading perspective, just for the common a man like, like me, you know, you read it and you wonder and you try to figure out what God's doing and why God would do that and why God would do this. And, and you walk away somewhat, um, somewhat enamored. Verse number three, he sees, or 13, he sees a, a, a far a fig tree having leaves. And he went to see if perhaps he could find something on it. And again, just the question of why he didn't know anything was on it um, just boggles men's mind. When he comes to it, he finds nothing on it, for it was um, not the season uh, for figs. And in response to it, um, he says, let no one eat the fruit of, uh, from, from you ever again. And his disciple heard it. His disciples heard it. If you were to go to Mar uh, Matthew's Gospel, I, I think chapter number 21, you would read that account as well. And you would read a little bit more extensively exactly what happens because um, it's all together. Jesus actually curses the tree. Um, in, 
Matthew 21, verse number 18. He says, let no fruit grow on it, on you ever again, on you. He's talking to the, to the tree like that. Uh, not to the disciples. Um, he finds the leaves on it and said to it, it says, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? And Jesus said unto them, assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith, and he goes on to give the same um, application as far as faith and, and prayer goes. Um, and again, it's, it's somewhat odd, you know, um, his response to the tree. It's almost as if Jesus is acting like the tree is a responsible agent here. Um, for one thing, he's talking to it. Right, look, tree. It's, it's almost as if Jesus, and this is the way the commentators read him. And I just tell you that to kind of help understand where we're coming from. Um, the, the, that even the commentators or, or people who've read it throughout history can't make sense of this such that they don't even believe it's Scripture. Um, that's the only reason that I say this, because it may go through your mind as well. Uh, not only atheists. Atheists look at this, and uh, such as Bertrand Russell, um, accuses Jesus of a vindictive fury here for blaming the tree for not producing figs out of season. Um, the whole episode tarnished the character of Jesus in his opinion. He goes on to write, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known in history because of this text. Um, even Christians throughout the ages have said things like, this is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expanded in forcing a crop of figs out of season. As it stands, it is simply incredible. His argument is, is why did Jesus get so upset with the hunger? Because it wasn't there. It's not its fault. And even if it was its fault in his divine nature, why didn't he just produce figs? You know, it doesn't make sense to, to most people, even Christians. Another Christian writes this. This, this account achieves no useful purpose. Even worse, Jesus' curse on the tree appears to be a spontaneous and spiteful reaction to his personal disappointment at finding no figs. And when in addition, Mark goes out of his way to tell us that it was in any case not the time of year when the figs should be expected. And the whole story seems quite discreditable, he says. It reminds one of the vindictive behavior of a holy child narrated in the, the infancy gospel of Thomas. It's hard to imagine why Jesus would have misused this miraculous power in a petty way, he says and still harder to understand why anyone would record it. Um, it should have been possible to find a more wholesome narrative basis for the lessons of the power of faith, which both Matthew and Mark have seen fit to draw from the story. And I just mention that because as you engage with people, and maybe you engage with people, you're just reading the text and you're wondering yourself, um, it seems somewhat odd. It seems odd to the scholars. It seems odd to the atheists, such that they conclude that this is, this is not Jesus at all. So what is, you know, what is Jesus doing? And it's out of character for him in some sense, just to be honest with you. You know, out of the entirety of the Gospels, there's only two miracles that seem destructive in nature. Um, one of them are the pigs when the demons are cast out. And that's glorious in the exercising of demons. But, but he puts them in the pigs and they destroy themselves over a mountain because of the demons. This is the only other one. Every other time you see our Lord Jesus Christ, I mean, he's, he's redeeming the earth. He's not destroying it. He's not pronouncing judgment upon it in a miraculous way. He's calming the storms. He's, he's bringing to life dead men. He's, he's, you know, he's, 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 he's reversing the blindness. He's, he's giving uh, hearing to the deaf. He's uh, you know, strength to the weak and to the lame. Uh, they're now going to walk. Um, th this is what we know of our Lord. So, so what does it mean when He comes and He just destroys this fig tree for, for 
um, as some would argue, no apparent um, reason at all, at all. Um, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Let's move on to the next portion where it says in verse 15, So they came to Jerusalem, and then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. So after he's done with the fig tree, or at least to that portion, um, what we find is we find him back in the temple the following day. He went previous, and now he's returned. Um, the temple being that place throughout history, um, where God and man has met together. Just to remind you, uh, maybe you don't think about it a whole lot. I know that some days uh, I don't. Um, Jesus goes to the really the, the pinnacle and the height of all um, Old Testament uh, religion and and Judaism. Um, it, it's significant not only for the temple, but but it's significant for for Christianity altogether. You know, uh, one thing that separates Christianity from all other religions, and even in its more primitive form of Judaism in the Old Testament, you know, before the, the revelation of God came, um, is the fact that our God dwells with us in a personal way, you know, in an intimate way. That in the beginning, uh, in the garden, Adam and Eve, and, and he walked with God. You'll find that even after that, after they're cast out of the garden, um, under judgment in some sense and condemnation, um, God still comes to them in various ways um, through a tabernacle, through a temple, and through various means. And under the new covenant in Christ, He's God with us. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Um, so, so this is the place that, that, that is going to be the hub of Judaism and really all Old Testament um, relationship with God and maybe even argue Old Testament Christianity to help us understand um, how, as we relate to God, how they related to God in the Old Testament. So this is the place that he goes. But it's also important to note that, that, that when we think oftentimes about the temple, we have uh, pagan ideas of a temple or we have just, um, just not full ideas of a temple. The term here, temple, is different than other terms um, in the Scriptures. Um, this term, temple, doesn't speak of that place where God literally dwells in the innermost part of it, the Holy of Holies or the Holy Place. Um, this temple that they're going to engage in, that Jesus is going to walk in, when it says that He went to the temple, um, it's speaking of the larger environment. Um, that it was, it was huge. And while there was that inner court um, where the, the, the high priest would go once a year and he was only allowed, as you came out of the perimeter, imagine it like circles around the perimeter, um, you would see that there was more engagement with more people. So the next portion, the priests could come, not just the high priest. And then there would be a court of uh, the court of the priests and then a court of women. And then there would be the court of the Gentiles. This outer portion where anyone and everyone was allowed to come. When it speaks of the temple here, that's what we're talking about. Jesus walks into the courts room of the temple in the outer courts in what we would refer to as um, the court of the Gentiles. And that's where you're going to see um, the marketplace set up. And that's where Jesus is going to engage here um, with the religious uh, crowd um, in all of their greed and all of their idolatry and all of their um, false worship. That this place that, had, that was known in the Old Testament and purposed by God for as a symbol of God's presence, God's dwelling, um, God's covenant with His people that would represent all of His activity with His, his people, um, Jesus comes. And this is just like the triumphal entry. This is prophetic. Malachi chapter 3 predicts that when the Messiah comes, He will purge the temple of its impurities. Um, that this place that is supposed to be a place of prayer, as he argues in just a moment, and a place of worship, Jesus comes in. 
and he takes over in some sense. That he begins, it says, to drive them out. Um, it says that he began to drive those out who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of money changers and seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Man, and you know, people would love to just cast this one out of the Bible too. You know, not only the fig tree because it's hard to understand or it doesn't quite comport with their, um, you know, their, their hippie view of Jesus and the fact that he's meek and mild. And, and he is, you know, it's, uh, not, not to make fun or to laugh or joke, uh, but, but people often have just a one sided view of Christ, you know, and they look at him. And I remember in college years ago before uh, ever any desire, just becoming a new Christian, you know, and uh, uh, having a conversation with a young man uh, you know, in his early 20s, and he said, the God of the New Testament just seems so much different than the God of the Old Testament. You know, Jesus just seems so loving and accepting and various other attributes, and it just doesn't comport with um, what we know about the fury in the Old Testament. But when you study the Scriptures and you see Jesus... Um, in, in, in episodes like this, in John chapter 2 and other places, and then in Revelation, you find out that, um, that, that, that this New Testament God very well comports with the Old Testament God, that yes, He's gracious and forgiving and long-suffering, but at the same time, um, there is an end to His patience and His long-suffering in which the judgment comes. And this is one of those scenarios um, that Jesus I almost said loses it, but He doesn't lose it. You know, we think of us in, in outbursts of anger and wrath as losing it. But Jesus is 100% totally in control of his affections. You know, and you think about the affections of Christ, you think about the life of Christ and his humanity. And man, it's, 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 it's hard to think about the affections of Christ such that, uh, and the purity of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ, right? He never sinned once, not only with his hands, but with his heart. There was never a time where his compassion was out of play. There was never a time where grace was extended that it shouldn't have been. There was never a time that he wept that it wasn't appropriate. And there was never a time that he expressed discontent and rage uh, and, even, and even indignation with people, with his disciples or with these folks that was out of place. That what we see here um, is not a temper tantrum or a fit of rage. Jesus didn't lose it. Um, it was a measured, controlled demonstration of the righteous anger of God based upon the reality of truth. That's what he does three years earlier in John chapter 2. And John teaches us, uh, tells us there as, as Jesus quotes, uh, or as it's quoted, Psalm 69:9, zeal for thy house has consumed me. That there is this zeal that Christ has for the worship of God and the house of God and the dwelling place of God and the place that God has covenanted with His people. There's a zeal that He has that overwhelms Him and consumes Him such that the appropriate action here um, is to flip the tables. You know, that's exactly what happens. He walks in, again, measured and pointed and intentional, uh, probably decided the day before what would happen as he looks at the, the idolatry and the greed and that has overtaken um, the place that God would meet with His people. And he takes these massive wooden tables with change, um, probably covering them, and he flips them. And it would have been overwhelming, you know? And there would have been money flying everywhere. Uh, they, they would come in. 
What would happen is that, that, that once a year, million, uh, sometimes a million people, um, scholars tell, historians tell us, would travel to Jerusalem for this period. This would be a place where hustle and bustle would be happening, um, and, uh, and the marketplace would be booming. People would be everywhere. Money would be being exchanged. And that's exactly what would happen. A tax would be paid by the Jews. Um, but what also began to happen was just, um, was just marketing like we know it today, and probably been like that in every generation, right? Um, uh, people are coming, and they don't want to bring a lamb from afar. They want to bring a dove from afar. Or maybe they brought it, and, um, and it just didn't meet the criteria. So what did they do? They would sell a dove at the, at the court of the Gentiles in the marketplace. Um, but sometimes they would mark it up as much as 15 times what it was supposed to be. Um, or they would just push aside someone's sacrifice so that they could sell them and uh, say it's unqualified to bring before God. Now you need to buy one of ours. You know, you ever heard of that marketing strategy? It's just not quite good enough. You need to buy one of ours, and it's going to be marked up um, extremely <laughs> high. This is what he's engaging in. This is what he's he's doing. And Jesus then takes the opportunity to teach. Um, he flips the tables and then he turns around and he looks and he looks at the people and he teaches them. And the idea is, is that he's continually teaching them. This is a long expression of teaching. And he says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. Um, and the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. Um, th- these portions of Scripture... When Jesus quotes that, he quotes two portions of Scripture particularly. And I want to read those to you. Isaiah chapter 56 and Jeremiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 56, I'm going to, he quotes verse 7, but I want to give you 6 through 8 really quick because I think it's important. Um, you read these words, 56 verse number 6. Also the sons of the foreigner who joins himself to the Lord to serve him, and to the Lord the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps defiling the Sabbath and hold fast my covenant. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain. You get that? All these people who are defiling, um, even the Sabbath, not holding, uh, who's holding fast to his covenant, these people I'm going to bring to my holy mountain. I'm going to make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. Mark quotes that. Matthew doesn't. But he in, includes that. Um, the Lord God, he goes on to say, who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others beside those who are gathered to him. You know, essentially the prophecy is, is that uh, this thing's supposed to go to the nation, boys. You know, this is not about Israel alone. This is about reaching the world. The prediction regards Israel's very purpose for being in existence. And one of those purposes is to be a light to the Gentiles. When Messiah had come, there would be an ingathering of all the nations, including the Gentiles. In fact, Israel was to be a part of gathering the Gentiles in as well. But Israel had a unique place apart from every other nation that God had ever dealt with in geography and history to be um, that, that, that nation which reaches the other nations. And that this court in which the things are happening... Um, this court of the Gentiles was available to all nations for prayer and reverent approach to God. And what did they do? 
They turned it into a marketplace, robbing God of His glory and the nations uh, and robbing the souls of men of their opportunity to commune with the living God. That the very purpose that this place existed was no longer being honored by those whom God had called and covenanted with. Imagine it's like this, you know, you give your child a, a knife or a machete or you know, something as they mature and you tell them, go do that with it. And they go out and they, they harm somebody or they injure their brother or they, they do something um, just and they know better. You know, it's not like you're giving it to a, a one year old who doesn't have a clue and he does it. No, no, no. You, they're old enough. They understand it. And you give them this instrument of productivity to serve and to honor and to bless others. And what do they do? They turn it on themselves and they turn it on others as, as, a, as, a, as an instrument of destruction. That's exactly what happened. The nation of Israel, we have, uh, you have been blessed among all nations. I've covenanted with you. I've given you the, 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 the fathers, the prophets, the, the oracles of God, the covenants, uh, you know, the, the blessings, the temple, the dwelling place. And you've taken that thing um, that I gave you for a particular purpose and you're doing the exact opposite. You know? And then in Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse number 8, um, you read these words. And this is the last portion that he quotes. So he's mixed these two prophecies or these two scriptures together. Um, this is where you're going to catch the den of thieves, right? Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse number 8, you read these, these words. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, bear, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know? And then come, listen, and then come and stand before me in the house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I even I have seen it, says the Lord. And the idea is, is that all this idolatry, debauchery, you, you name the sin that's going on, he's saying that you're doing this in the, in the nation and in your families and everywhere. And then you come to the house of God and you say, you're, you're going to deliver me? You know? So you get the quote and, and, and then he's talking to priests and to scribes and Pharisees who are going to understand what Jesus is saying. He looks at them in the face after he shows his utter indignation for what's going on and he undergirds that with the teaching of God's Word and he says that the very purpose I gave this, um, you're, you're, you're ripping glory from God and you're destroying people by veiling the Gospel and you come here and you think it's okay and you're going to be delivered because you're God's covenant people, you know, because your father's Abraham and, and, and you're deceived. Not only is it wicked and debauched, but the great tragedy is, is that you're comfortable doing it and you can't see the reality which is right before your eyes. That's the great tragedy. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and they sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the peoples were astonished at his teaching and they didn't get it at all. They didn't understand it. And this would be, again, a redetermination on their part to kill the Christ. Why? Because they were afraid of him. They feared him. They feared that he would form a coup and overthrow them. 
Um, they didn't listen to his teaching. They didn't care. They just saw the astonishment of the people and the fact that they would flock to him if he was left undeterred. Um, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. Um, they determined to destroy him. And I'll just go ahead and let the you know, um, cat out of the bag. I think, that's, I think that's why he did it. I think that what you're going to find as you go through the book of Mark from here on and in the other Gospels, that these things are calculated by our Lord because His work is about to be done. And He's going to facilitate that work um, by the preaching of the, of the good news and the, with total opposition to the, to the, um, to the sins of the nation um, such that He is going to provoke them in a way for them to fulfill the desire of their heart which is to murder the Christ. Thus, fulfilling all Old Testament prophecy and bringing in the new covenant. And part of, that's partly why he's hid himself up to this point. And that's a portion of why I'm convinced that, that now he is becoming public like never before and withstanding um, men and the religious elite on their own turf like he never has before. And then um, you see the final fate of the fig tree. Um, and, this, and that's what you see. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. And now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, had faith in God. And he gives the application. And we'll get to that portion next week. So they come back out. They're, they're flowing the next day. And, um, and, and Peter particularly looks and he says, Teacher, look, look what you did. You know, I don't know if I'm and 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 Matthew says that they were astonished at it. It was something that they had not possibly seen Christ do before, or if they did, maybe they didn't understand, or maybe they just reveled in the glory of what he was able to do um, in killing the of the fig tree. Um, and that's the story, right? That's the that's the story. So what's the significance? I think the primary significance is, is that these things are sandwiched together and intertwined um, as they together um, symbolize Christ's judgment upon hypocritical, unbelieving Israel. Um, I believe that this fig tree is somewhat representative of um, the nation and the religious elite and the fact that He comes and he looks for fruit and there is none. And when he finds none, and he's given enough time for some, um, he puts it to death. And he moves on to a kingdom which will bear fruit, and that is under the new covenant, um, the church. The church. Through this, he's expressing and displaying his disdain towards the leaders of Israel. And either they'll repent or they'll kill him. And this is the theme that you'll, you'll find all throughout the book of Mark and in the other Gospels, that these last few, what he's going to do is just bring um, scathing rebuke and condemnation against the nation so that they will kill him in part and secure the salvation of all the nations, including those who would come to him by faith in Israel, but also um, the Gentiles. And this is um, prevalent all throughout the Scriptures. And I'm not going to argue that every time that you see a fig tree that it's Israel. But sometimes when you do see a fig tree, it is Israel. For example, in Jeremiah chapter number 8, that's exactly what you see. Uh, verse number 13, you see a, the nation of Israel spoken of as a fig tree bearing no figs. 
Um, and that Babylon comes in and they seize the nation as a result of um, uh, the lack of righteous fruit. That's what you'll find in Hosea chapter 9 and verse number 16 and 17. You'll find that they are wandering among the nations. Why? Because they bore no fruit. Um, there's a sense in which this is pointing towards a time in which they would be cast out um, for the church. I mean, you don't only find it in the Old Testament, you also find it in the New Testament. Matthew chapter number 8, verse number 11, you read these words. And I say to you that many will come from the east and from the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of this kingdom, the kingdom, will be cast out into outer darkness. He's saying the Gentiles are going to come in, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. And he gives faith to one, um, one Roman centurion. Not only that, but you find in, um, in Matthew's account in 21, not far from this very account, in 21 and verse number 42, these words. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was talking about them, is what the text says. Luke's Gospel also gives a unique um, perspective in this area. Um, Luke chapter number 18, if you were to turn there, you don't necessarily have to. But what you would find is that in this account, um, the fig tree is not there. But interestingly enough, following the triumphal entry of our Lord in Luke 18 and prior to the entrance of Him cleansing the temple where the fig tree should be, you read this event. Now as He, was, as he drew near, He saw the city and wept over it. You get that? So as after the triumphal entry and He's drawing near to the city, Jesus is crying in Mark. And He's weeping. Saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that would make for your peace, if you'd only known, he says. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you, and your children with you to the ground. And they will not leave you in, they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And then he went into the temple, it says. Also in Luke chapter 13, um, you read a, a unique parable to, to, to Luke as well where he speaks of a fig tree about a certain man that planted a, a, in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and he found none. And then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. Cut it down, he says. Why do you use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it and it bears fruit. But if not, after that, cut, you can cut it down. The idea is, is it's, it's interesting. Three years it's been there. How long had Christ been there? Three years. And He said it's not time yet to cut it down. Give it a little more time. We'll fertilize it. We'll give it the Gospel. We'll do this. We'll do that. And if it still doesn't, cut it down. And Jesus comes in Mark chapter number um, 11 and in Matthew chapter 21 and He sees this fig tree and it bears no fruit. Um, and He expects fruit upon it. And so you say, well, I don't understand everything. I don't either. But I do know this. There's an expectation. There's a desire in the Lord that provokes him toward a certain plant um, that he created. It has a particular purpose. When he got there, he found out that, that it bore no fruit um, such that he cut it down. 
such that he cut it down. Um, and I think that that's what we're talking about here in large portion. That the fig tree is often in Old Testament and New um, speaks of the relationship between God the Father and Israel. Jeremiah 8.13 says, I will surely consume them, says the Lord. Why? No grapes shall be on the vine nor figs on the fig tree and the leaf shall fade. That's how He's going to consume them. Um, there's no grapes. There's no figs. Um, you find the same thing in Hosea. Figs falling off and laying to rot is a symbol of Israel's disobedience. Thus God cuts it down. Uh, Micah chapter 4 and verse 4. Um, you read uh, Zechariah chapter 3 and verse number 10. Um, in that day, this is a, a symbol of prosperity for the nation as well under Messiah's rule. That there will be a day, that, that, that he's saying there's a day in which prosperity will be recognized by fruit on the fig tree. He says in Zechariah 3.10, In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. And there's an idea of a day of prosperity coming in which the fig tree will generate fruit for all the nations, for the neighbors, both positive and negative. That there's a positive and a negative here, even though we only seemingly see negative in the book of Mark. That those who don't produce fruit are cut down, but there's a time coming when Messiah comes in which the fig tree will be bountiful, that the vine will be productive and it will um, reach to the nations and the nations will prosper because Messiah has come. And Messiah's come. And that the presence of leaves with no fruit is a symbol of, uh, of something present of external religious activity and seeming like it has life, yet it lacks total spirituality. You know, that there's a legitimate expectation from God for fruit to meet His desires. And when He goes to a place for it and He finds no fruit, that you find that He cuts the branch off. John chapter 15, you find that He cuts it down um, in, in, in various other places. Romans chapter number 11, the branches are removed. John 15. Um, I want to read to you a couple more. I want to read it in a different version uh, because I think it's a little easier to understand. So I'm going to pull up Micah chapter 7, um, verse number 1 on my phone. Read this. How sad for me, he says, for I am like one who when the summer fruit has been gathered after the gleaning of the grape harvest finds no grape cluster to eat, no early fig which I crave. Faithful people have vanished from the land. There is no one upright among the people. All of them wait in an ambush to shed blood. They hunt each after with, other with a net. Both hands are good in accomplishing evil. The official and the judge demand a bribe. When the powerful man communicates his evil desire, they plot together. The best of them, he says, is like a briar. The most upright is worse than a hedge of thorns. The day of your watchman, the day of your punishment is coming. At this time, their panic is here. Do not rely on a friend, he says. Isn't that sad? Don't trust in a close companion. Seal your mouth from whom the woman lies in your arms. Surely a son considers his father a fool. A daughter opposes her mother and a daughter-in-law is against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. But I will look to the Lord, he says. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. This is what it's like in Israel's moral decline. Yet Micah says, I will look for the day of the Lord when it comes and prosperity will come. When Messiah comes. And I know that there's a lot of Scripture here and I'm, I'm working towards something, I promise. But I want to take you one more place and that's in the book of Isaiah, chapter number 5. This has been a particular portion of Scripture that has been um, convicting to me all throughout my Christian life. came across it earlier and God just continues to, to convict me through it. Um, this too speaks of the Lord's vine. 
in chapter 5 and verse number 1, but it's talking about Israel. And you read these words. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding the vineyard, his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and he cleared it out of stones and planted it in the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes or strange grapes, rotten grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then when I expected it to bring forth good grapes? Remember Mark? He came and found expected fruit, but he found leaves. Why did I, when I expected to bring forth good grapes, you brought forth wild grapes. And now please let me tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge. I will, it shall be burned and break it down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord is the host of the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. This is the nation of Israel in covenant with God. When they break that covenant, God takes away all the blessings that they have and He leaves them to themselves. And that's exactly what happened in the nation of Israel in 70 A.D. as the temple was destroyed and, um, and the kingdom was taken away in that time. Um, he says he looks around and he concludes, I did everything that I could. What more could I have done? The presence of, again, the presence of leaves with no fruit is a living contradiction otherwise known as what we know as hypocrisy. It's to say one thing with your mouth and it's to do another. It's as if the tree there with Christ was marketing satisfaction only to find none. It was as if Christ is talking to this inanimate object and if it could respond, it was as if it was saying, come to me and be fed. You'll find food. You'll find refreshment. You'll find energy. You'll find life. And with an appearance of life, when he gets there, there's no fruit. There's nothing to sustain him. Just like the temple in Jerusalem. Just like the temple. Nothing but leaves. You can come. Everyone knows what it's there for. Everyone's familiar with it. The Jews know the history. They know the story. They know how it began. They know its purpose. They know that they come. Business is booming. They know Passover's happening. They know about the lambs and the doves. But that's all you find. Nothing but leaves. Nothing but leaves. No substance. Jesus is going to walk in here in just a moment with more than just general disappointment because there's no fruit. He's going to push the envelope. He's going to provoke the affections of the Pharisees and they're going to kill Him. The temple, the temple which stood as a place of worship and offered and proclaimed that it had something to offer to Israel as well as the nations and this place of prayer that was indicated in the text, this communion with God, this uh, place that represented the depravity of man and the grace of God. Every time an animal was slain, they should have been reminded of the price of their sin and that it was death and that the wages of sin was death, but that the gift of God was eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And yet Jesus comes and he, oh, what does He find? He just finds leaves. Why do you flip the tables? Because there's nothing but leaves. There's nothing here to save. There's no communion with God. You're robbing Him of His glory. You're robbing Him. You're robbing the nations of the Gospel. Why? Because there's, there's, there's nothing here. This means which was supposed to be, this place that was supposed to be a balm and a healing, uh, and a healing place for, for the entirety of the world. You flipped it around and you made it a den of robbers. It's overrun with your idolatry. It's overrun with your greed. It's overrun with, 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 with sour grapes. 
And they look to God and, and they look back and, you know, and it's, you read Isaiah chapter number five and you, you just wonder why, right? And this isn't to pick on Israel or to, that, that I'm anti-Semitic, but this is the culmination of the New Testament and the New Covenant. This is, this is what procures Christ's death. And, and I'm not against the Jews and I, I love Israel and I want to see them come to Christ just as much as the rest of the nations. Um, but, 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 and I say all that to say this, I'm bringing it back to us. To us, you know, the people of God have defected in large part, defrauded the temple while retaining some religious externalism. And before we really throw them under the bus, we must ask in our day, does that sound familiar? Right. Is there a corporate context today in which we could apply this as well? And the answer is yes. In the church, in the church. Um that this still applies to uh, the corporate entity that we know of today as the church and probably every individual that, that claims to be a Christian. But read this. And to the angel of the church of Sardis, right? These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. Um, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. Be watchful, strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, that have not defiled their garments, and they walk with me in white, and for they are worthy. And he goes on then to talk about those who overcome this clothed in white garments and that he won't blot their names out of the book of life, but I will confess my name before you. But to the, the other crowd, what does he say? He says, if you don't repent, I'm going to come. I'm coming to you. Revelation chapter 1 and 2, what happens? There's candles and, and there's someone walking among the candlesticks and, and in their disobedience, the warning comes that, 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 that if, you, if you disobey and you walk and there's no fruit and all I find is, is leaves, I'll take the light away. The light's gone. It's out. It'll be pitch black. That which was supposed to be a city upon a hill. That which Jesus Christ died for and made the means within the New Testament where Gentile and Jew could come together as this one man, Ephesians 2 and 3, Acts chapter 15, uh, in which, which is to be a, a proclamation of the gospel to the nations where the very character in, is, is displayed, where Christ is the chief cornerstone and the, the apostles are the foundation and we are the lively stones. We are um, a, a holy nation, a, a royal priesthood, a people who are not His people but now are. This place is now um, the place where God communes with His people. But listen, if you carry on and I, I come to the church and, and I walk among the candlesticks this morning and I find nothing but leaves, beware. 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 But that's the idea. That's the idea. And this is all through the New Testament, Matthew chapter 7. You know, you'll know them by their fruits. Fruitfulness is not something that is a product um, either of brute force. You know? This is the work of God in the life of a believer. The idea is that good trees produce good fruit and bad trees produce bad fruit. It's that simple. There's no mismatching here. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying today that when we walk away that, that you need to produce fruit, you know? And that you need to you know, you know, grind your teeth, grit and bear it, and just, and just honor God. No, fruit bearing is a spiritual reality to the believer. John 15, that as we abide in Christ, the fruit of Christ um, is, is born within us. It's the very, um, uh, it's the result of the activity of God in us. And that when He comes, He expects to find fruit. What fruit? The fruit of repentance and the fruit of righteousness. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, you know, John's there preaching and he's laying the axe to the root because of their lack of repentance. Right? 
Every tree that doesn't bear fruit, it's cut down, he says. He lays the axe to the roots. That when Christ comes, that's why he says in Revelation chapter number three, repent. Repent. That when Christ returns, and then even Christ today, he sees the secrets of men, he knows what we do, um, that, 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 that we are a place of worship and we commune with God. This is, in some sense, the house of prayer. This is where we come together on the Lord's Day worship. And it matters what we do. This matters. This all matters. But this is not the, this shouldn't be the, 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 the product of men, but this should be the reality of God in the hearts and the lives of men. And thus that whenever he comes here this morning, he expects to see the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of repentance. It's not self-help. It's not self-improvement. It's broken hearts depending upon a holy and a gracious God. That's the fruit he's looking for this morning. That's what he was looking for in Israel. And he couldn't find it. That's what he's looking for here this morning. Does he find it? When he walks up to the tree of your life today, if I can make that application, will he find repentance? Will he find righteousness? Will he find the fruit, as Paul says, of righteousness under the praise and glory of God? You know? What if Christ came up to us today because he's hungry for people to live after him because he has this desire? And he sees a little church planted in Kingsport, Tennessee, most of which nobody in the world knows we're here, but Christ does. And he looks for figs. Will he find any? Where are the grapes? Or will he find sour grapes? Where's the repentance? Is there any? Where's the dependence? Is there some at all? Where's the righteousness? You say, well, you know, I, it's hard. I try and try and try and nothing seems to get better. I read the Word and it doesn't do this. I, read the, I pray and it still doesn't help. I, I go to church and it doesn't. I, I listen to the pastor, you know, and I try and I try and I try and I try and I try. Um, you know, if only God would do this, then I would serve Him more. Man, if God gave me a different wife or He gave me a more gracious husband or He you know, gave me a better job or He gave me a better church or... You know, if it wasn't for that guy or this guy, if it wasn't for this, I'd serve him. I would just ask this question. What more could he do than he's already done? That's the charge against Israel, isn't it? To rely upon anything else is to spit in the face of God and the very sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Is it not enough? Is He not enough today for us to serve Him? Is He not enough? The nation of Israel, I did all these things. I planted you. I gave you all the blessings. And I look at my life and I look at yours and I see even from a natural perspective, man, we are blessed beyond measure. I mean, we're gathering together in liberty just north of us. I mean, people are being imprisoned for this, uh, you know, uh, in, 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 the, in the Middle East. I mean, there's just places that, 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 that is just unheard of what's going on as far as persecution goes, you know. And I mean, it's like, it's, uh, I mean, if, there, if we're waiting on comfort, if we're waiting on ease, if we're waiting on more, if we're waiting on resources, if we're waiting on these things or that things or the right things all to fall together, they all fail together here. Like Mark chapter number 11 through 16, Matthew chapter number 27, like it all came together there. 
Like everything that you need, everything that I need to be a great commission church, to go into all the world and preach the gospel, you know, to go into the nations. I mean, sometimes I'm sitting around just waiting for the things just to get together and to start serving God and honoring Him and leading my home. And just and it's like, man, if I just had a little bit more discipleship, man, I could lead my wife. Like, what has He done that He is, you know, that, that, that what, what, could, what more could He do to make you and me just more faithful? And the answer there is it's rhetorical. It's nothing. Jesus looked, God the Father looks at Israel and He says, what more could I have done that, that, that I did not do? And we look at this Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and, 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 and I think about my own life and you say, like, man, you're being hard this morning. and that's, Forgive me. It's, it's, I'm being more hard on myself, not you. Because I wait around on a lot of days for God to do something else and wait for that sign and just you know, think, man, if only this, I'd... I'd give you more, Lord. And then Isaiah chapter 5 shows up. And what more could I do than that which I didn't? And I, then I think about Romans chapter number 8. If he freely gave us his own son, how shall he not freely give us all things? You know? And then, but on the flip side, we read Revelation and we read other places and we see all the glories of those who bear fruit. Right, Paul said what? He said unto the praise and glory of Christ that if you are here this morning and you have the fruit of God, you have the Spirit of God, you have love, joy, peace, and long-suffering and all of these uh, uh, other attributes and fruits and characteristics of God and uh, those things that you, you grip those by faith and you honor and glorify Him because that's His work and not yours and you understand that that's grace and, and undeserved and you understand that's mercy and if you didn't get mercy, you know what you would have got? And that's the response this morning. It's only, it's only hard if there's only leaves on your life this morning. It's only difficult sermon to listen to this morning if, 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 you're, if, you're, if you're examining the tree and you realize that you were created for this purpose and that, that God comes to you this morning and He stands before you and He looks among the leaves. It's only hard if there's no leaves. If all He finds is leaves. It's glorious when He finds fruit. It's glorious when you commune with God. It's glorious when grace is extended to such an extent that you think, man, the only reason that I'm here today sitting among you is because God's extended grace to me. And that as I abide in Christ and I live in Him and I, I come to the temple and I, and, and I commune with the Lord, that there's just fruit and there's fruit and there's more fruit. And some days I wake up and I see more fruit and I think, God, why in the world would you give me more fruit? Like, I don't deserve it. Thus the fruit is a praise unto the glory and the praise of Christ. That if there's any fruit this morning, it's not because of man's ingenuity, it's not because of academia, it's not because of skill or intellect, it's not because of uh, you know, great uh, preaching or eloquence or sophistry or anything of that sort because that's not here. You know? We're just men gathering together <laughs> like trying to figure out what to do. And I can tell you that's the truth. Because most days I have no clue, you know? And I wonder why I still believe it all some days. And then I look at the cross and I think that's why. It's all because of Him, you know? If Christ were to come down today, again, we have that great illustration of the nation of Israel. And it wasn't everybody in the nation of Israel. It was, you know, the constituted nation in that time. Um, but it's a message for us today. It's a message for the corporate church. It's a message for us as, as Christ's Bible. It's a message for us as an individual. You know? 
And as you take the Word of God this morning and you put up the mirror of the Word of God, you know, is, what do you find? Is there leaves? Or is there fruit abounding because Christ has extended a gracious, you know, extended a measurable grace to your life? If not, I would beg you with revelation to repent and to believe and to run to Christ and to commune with Him and spend the rest of your life spending and being spent as a fool for Christ. You know? And on the hard days you come in and you see other people's fruit and you pick from it and you think, and it just gives you strength for the day. You know? And then if you're here this morning and you have fruit, praise God. Praise God for that because you don't deserve it and I don't deserve it. Why did God love Israel? You know what the text says in Deuteronomy? Just because He loved them. <laughs> don't you love that? Because they were the least of all. You know, some days I sit around, I wait, I think, man, we could have great ministry if you had this person or that person or this skill or that skill. And then I think about the Apostle Paul. He chose not many wise. He chose not many strong. He chose the weak and the foolish of the world. And I look in the mirror and I think, God, you're right. I look at us and you may look around and you think, this isn't much. This is exactly what God uses. Nations like Israel and churches like this to accomplish His mission, to reach the nations. Why? Because they don't think we can. And God wants to say, I can. Thus, have faith, He says. He goes on to say, have faith such that it can move mountains. Believe if I can do this and you can do that. And we'll get into that next week. Where's your faith at? Nothing believes. I think I listened to a number of sermons called that. It's etched in my mind. I think it was also etched in the minds of the disciples. I don't think they ever forgot that fig tree. I think it provoked them onto glory to the praise of Christ for the fruit that they had. And I hope this morning that that will do the same to you. Say, man, this is hard. Again, it's only hard if there's nothing believes. It's precious if today you find fruit. So I pray that you find fruit. If not, run to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you again just for the glory of your Son. We praise you for texts like that, Father, which you know, in our own mind and thinking just leave us uh, running in circles sometimes, figuring out what you're doing and what you're saying and, and a, a hundred other things. But Father, you always are precious to us and meeting us in the text, giving us what we need, Father, not only what for today, but for the rest of our lives. Um, such that it um, has eternal consequences. So, Lord, I, I pray that you'd help us, Lord, in understanding this text. And this is hard. Lord, I, I, pray, I, I pray I got it right. Sometimes I don't know. And I pray when I don't, Lord, you're patient with me. But at the same time, Lord, I'm accountable. If not, Lord, teach me. Teach me, Father. You have a desire for me, and I don't know why. I don't know why you looked down, Father, upon me 20 years ago and saw fruit. I don't know why. You're the creator of heaven and earth, Father. You have no needs. So why? I don't know. And some days I don't care to know. Because I know that you love me. And I don't need to know why. Father, I just want to be faithful to you. 
Father, if I, I just want to produce fruit that's honoring to you. God, I have so many sour grapes in my life and vines that are often barren. I pray that you'd lay the ax to those roots. That you'd help me to take off the old man and put on the new, to put off myself and put on Christ. God, I praise you for the glory that is in Christ, the Son of God. Father, the last thing that I desire and desire for the people that sit before me is for them one day to sit before the utter indignation of the Son of God as the sword comes out of his mouth. But they find a refuge and a safe place in him, Father. Not as the great judge, but as their Savior. So if there's somebody here today, Lord, that doesn't know Christ, I pray that you'll lay them in running to you. God, I pray that you'll give them faith and repentance. I pray, Lord, that you'll communicate the gospel to them in a way that they've never heard. I pray that the majesty and the glory of Christ, Lord, will just overwhelm them such that the only thing they can do is run to you. Father, that's what we desire this morning. We desire to be a church that, uh, Lord, operates um, as the dwelling place of God such that the nations come to Christ. That Christ Bible Church wouldn't be a den of thieves, Father, fulfilling our own purpose, running to our own end, but building the kingdom of Christ up, Father, for your honor and for your glory. So, Lord, um, would you do this work? Would you show us where we err, Father? Um, so that when you come, if you come today, you won't find nothing but leaves, but you'll find the fruit of Christ, the Spirit of God, overwhelming this place, Father, as we interact with one another and that the world father that comes through and meets with us will have no excuse because they saw the display of christ in the lives of these people i know i have lord and i'll be more accountable because i've been here among your precious bride seeing your character and nature in a way that's undeniable that there is a god and his name is jesus and he loves us. Father, I pray that this church abounds, Father, in righteousness and fruit on your behalf. Give us the courage and boldness to totally depend upon you, not to ask for more because we have it all anyway. May it not be said of us as it was said of Israel and many people in our day, and maybe us in the past, Father, where we want more from Christ to serve him. What more could I have done that I have not done? What mother blessing what other thing help us to realize there's nothing that if we have Christ, we have it all. And we are equipped for service. We are equipped to live and to die for Jesus Christ. Father, it's in his name we pray. Amen.